Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show. It appears there was a lot more intelligence into the Sri Lankan bombing than was first understood. Why didn't citizens know? Ukraine has a new president, a former TV star. Sound familiar? With the release of the Mueller report last week, has it changed anything now that we've had time to digest? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Terrorist attack on uh, Sri Lankan churches, luxury hotels, um, um, hundreds of people. I think the, the, uh, the death rate in and around are just under 300 people at this point. Uh, Islamic State says it is responsible for the tax uh, through some smaller local group. We'll talk about that more in uh, just a second. Uh, and again, goes along with the blog, uh, the blog today, extremists found on both sides of the spectrum. Let's bring in David Harrison, Cygnus Strategic Group. He is a terrorism expert. He's with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to talk to you again, Scott. What are your thoughts uh, when you hear of this attack? What do we knew? What do we know about those that are claiming responsibility? Is it a smaller local group, or are they affiliated with larger organizations? Well, it's a confusing kind of entity. The National Tawhid Jamaat at the NTJ. It's uh, reportedly been involved in promoting uh, Islamist extremist ideology and so on. But it doesn't seem to have been especially prominent in facilitating and in, in giving effect to these kinds of plots and plans that uh, seem to have been behind the recent attacks. Um, that may have shifted in the sense that one of those suspected of having been a leader in this whole enterprise, a fellow by the name of Movi Zaran Hashim, uh, generally described as an extremist uh, cleric, uh, an Islamist cleric, uh, with some background in India. Uh, it, it said that uh, he may be some kind of link uh, who may have connected the um, uh, broader, say, elements of the broader international Islamist extremist uh, movement to this NTJ organization, and uh, as a result may have uh, facilitated the actual assaults. There are uh, indications that this extremist cleric may have traveled back and forth uh, over the last while by fishing boats in order to escape uh, monitoring between uh, Sri Lanka and India, and that perhaps weapons and explosives were uh, moved in that way. But uh, whatever the details, certainly the extensive, if not profound, nature of the planning and arranging, the reconnaissance and the developing of weapons for this attack uh, is unmistakable and points, of course, to a broader kind of network and therefore international threat. Uh, an extraordinary bit of planning, all of this, and from an operational, a cold-hearted operational perspective, a grand success in slaughtering a great many hmm. people. We've heard about the um, uh, number of people injured, and it's well worth mentioning that a very considerable number of the injuries in such circumstances might be inflicted on people who would later wish they had actually been killed, hmm. uh, something that is hugely underreported because, of course, most of us don't have the uh, scientific and medical backgrounds to 
understand exactly what the sorts of explosions we've uh, seen here can do to uh, the bodies of people who survive. Um, I mean, from brain injury to tearing out of the lungs or parts of the lungs to deafness mm. uh, to gastrointestinal damage. Uh, it's the most hideous thing, and uh, there even seems to be some research that the mere, if I can call it that, physical forces involved can result in uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, something that yeah. at least traditionally has been thought of as a more exclusively psychological reaction to these kinds of enormities. What about information that's surfacing now that there was intelligence on this and it just didn't, it didn't get through the proper channels? Yeah, word seems to have come out, as you say, that the uh, Indian intelligence services may have uh, conveyed to Sri Lanka <clears throat> indications that some sort of planning was afoot here. We, of course, don't know the reliability of some of those reports. Uh, it might be, if they're half accurate in the interests of the Indians, to put out the fact that they had attempted to alert their uh, Sri Lankan allies but um, And there has been some close cooperation, it must be said, between Indian and Sri Lankan intelligence over many years because of the uh, Tamil Tigers issues that had preceded all of this. Um, what Sri Lanka was doing if they had received indications of trouble, how specific such indications may have been, which is often ignored as an issue in a lot of the reporting, it becomes a major issue if one is to simply say that, uh, you know, it looks like there are things, <clears throat> excuse me, bubbling along here and you may get a threat of a general kind. Well, that may not be as helpful as uh, receiving intelligence service might require in order to act in a decisive way that could make a difference. But if India was uh, more precise than that, then I guess the Sri Lankans would have some explaining to do to their own people. Uh, what about uh, information, again, that's surfacing that this is retaliation for what happened in New Zealand? Any thought on that? Oh, yes, it's interesting, that uh, suggestion of that. It's uh, entirely plausible, but uh, I guess one of the things that strikes one is that uh, the uh, international Islamist threat has been so entirely well-defined for so very many years uh, before there had been any kind of uh, uh, major anti-Muslim reaction of the kind we saw in the uh, hideousness at Christchurch, New Zealand, that, you know, one, one sort of thinks would uh, an individual of the kind who has been suggested to have been the leader have required uh, New Zealand in order to want to butcher uh, um, Christians and Hindus and others uh, against whom, again, according to reports, his YouTube sermons have just been full. Uh, I mean, and indeed, um, some of the, it said that some of the mainstream Muslim organizations in Sri Lanka have long complained bitterly to uh, government authorities in Sri Lanka about this individual and his uh, decisive nature, and uh, indeed about, um, I guess, uh, his alleged training of some Muslim kids. Uh, it's it, it, it seems to have come to the attention of, against the major mainstream Muslim organization in Sri Lanka, that this fellow was uh, apparently cranking up the hatred against Hindus and Christians and others. 
And uh, those uh, moderate Muslims were, of course, appalled by all of this, recognized in it a real threat. But uh, again, for one reason or another, it seems that uh, the uh, cleric was not uh, able or one way or another taken under control. So, uh, yeah, you can see all of these problems. Um, uh, there has been a bit of an attempt by some people for various reasons, and some of them uh, to which I'm a bit sympathetic, to play down some of the extent, the scope, and so on, of Islamist extremism and terrorism worldwide. But it, that may be a bit of a diversion, too, from the reality of the scale of uh, the Islamist terrorism that we've been seeing. And we've just had reported, I guess, in Canada, two people who may have come into Canada as refugees who themselves appear, at least in one definite case, to have been been connected to ISIS. And this individual, incidentally, was a, a Christian um, who seems to have done work for ISIS and has wound up here, again, despite the assurances that governments give us that they've got all of these kinds of risks covered. So it's a complicated world. Is this is there any direct involvement of ISIS on in in this situation here? Has there been any report of that? Uh, yes, there is an assertion apparently from AMAC, uh, a news organization that's said to be fairly close to sources of information from ISIS that ISIS is claiming responsibility for this. The is that just pro- is that just propaganda, or you know, I mean, they cl- would claim responsibility for anything like this. Is that the case here, or do you think they are involved in some way? Well, you you correctly anticipated me there because uh, ISIS has a very uneven record, and uh, so its mere statement that it's responsible uh, doesn't uh, carry a huge amount of water. It may be seeking credit to demonstrate that it its terrorist writ runs around the world. Right. Um, especially at a time when we do know that uh, ISIS members and uh, sympathizers are very much now planning for follow-on phases of foreign attacks after the collapse of their own uh, ostensible caliphate. But uh, others are wondering if uh, al-Qaeda or some of its elements may have been involved, and still others, and perhaps in combination with those uh, hypotheses, are wondering if um, possibly some uh, ISIS or former ISIS fighters in the Syria-Iraq theater of operations might not have made their way back home, say, to Sri Lanka, um, and, uh, and, and then gone into action. Such has been the uh, apparent mastery they've demonstrated on a technical terrorist level uh, and, of course, in relation to some of the tactical components of uh, reconnaissance, operational security, and the rest. And operational security, that is, in everyday terms, the secrecy of the planning and operation, uh, seems to have been demonstrated, unless the Sri Lankan government absolutely fell flat in a number of regards. I mean, it seems to have been demonstrated here when you do consider the logistical operation, the complexity and movement and so on and funding that had to have preceded these really very sophisticated attacks. And then the success in achieving detonations, which is mm. another failure point that you sometimes find in terrorist operation. So, um, yeah, all around uh, quite a complex situation. So how is the world viewing this? It's been a while since we've had an attack of, of this magnitude. Um, uh, Donald Trump not that long ago saying ISIS is dead. How is the world viewing this? 
especially with it, you know, in an area where it didn't seem to be a lot of anti-Christian sentiment, but now obviously there is. Yes, yes. Um, well, the fact is that uh, I think as some have finally been pointing out, uh, Christians seem to be the uh, most persecuted religious group yeah. uh, in the world. Uh, I gather statistically, uh, this has been very heavily documented, and I guess uh, it suited many of us to avert our gaze for a series of reasons, uh, not wanting to be divisive, maybe being embarrassed about telling some home truths, mm. and uh, all the rest. So uh, I, it's, it's rather amazed me, I have to say, uh, including when you look at some of our own churches that may be inclined to be uh, very otherwise forthright, and uh, some might even say melodramatic about pointing out yeah. some of the evils of the broader world. Uh, Does this change yeah. the discussion? Because, uh, you know, often when we talk about shootings in mosques and such, we'll get listeners that will send us notes and say, you know, look, what about all the Christians that are killed throughout the world? Blah, 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 blah. Is this an issue we have to be more aware of? Well, of course, it's a human rights issue. And if we're concerned about people who are killed, abused, and maimed abroad, whatever their backgrounds, as we assert that we are, then uh, we shouldn't exclude Christians uh, just because perhaps they're brown or black uh, or of some other color or sub, uh, sub-description. And uh, I think perhaps this is a bit of a, an awakening. I mean, uh, when you see actual legal systems that, uh, as in Pakistan and other such places, are formally connected to this kind of abuse. You do wonder what is going on, and indeed, where are our own governments, our own churches, for that matter? And uh, <clears throat> it would be nice to see in um, some of the same kinds of expressions of concerns, and, and I say the same kind, in quality and quantity, uh, as the sorts that we correctly conveyed in relation to the atrocious, disgraceful episode in uh, New Zealand against uh, innocent Muslims. Uh, the fact that, that some have said of the story, the story surfaced that this is in retaliation to New Zealand. Is, is, is this the opportunity to point that out, or do you think that's someone just trying to push that cause? Uh, oh, very difficult to be in someone else's yeah. mind. As I was saying earlier on, um, you know, we've seen so much anti-Christian butchery uh, around the world, and uh, beyond butchery, I mean, look in Nigeria, we've got people, uh, young girls and women yeah. who've been kidnapped and yet to be returned. These have been rendered into sex slavery and all the rest, and yet we, after a, a little tweet or two, uh, pass on to more exciting things like Dancing with the Stars or uh, other such things of major international importance. And, uh, you know, we're sort of surprised to hear this re-emerging. Um, it's, uh, it reminded me a little of a line, I guess, Churchill had about uh, one of his uh, opponents in politics, where he said, uh, this person walks along, trips over the truth, and then gets up as though nothing ever happened. Hmm. So are we still too politically correct to identify both sides of this? There's extremism on both sides of the political spectrum and religious spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, as somebody who, uh, back in the early 90s, before Timothy McVeigh uh, blew up the Oklahoma City 
building there, and uh, you remember he was, uh, I guess, a white supremacist, though not actually a Christian supremacist and terrorist, though we've had Christian terrorists, of course, around. Um, but, uh, you know, as someone who was sounding the alarm on that kind of thing, um, I, I'm now finding myself uh, struck by how there may be a tendency to inflate the so-called white nationalist threat to some degree, and it is very definitely a threat. Um, but it's almost by way of uh, playing down uh, certain other threats, like the Islamist threats and so on. And we've seen so many uh, mainstream Muslims, I mean, warning about this very threat in their community, that the failure to give it appropriate emphasis tends to undermine, again, mainstream Muslims, some of whom are risking a fair amount to speak out very candidly about this in um, communities in Canada. I work with any number of them, so I certainly know of that. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're ideal Canadians uh, from a security standpoint, among many others. So it's it's really weird. And, and we even see... Uh, I guess efforts to play down that threat in very strange contexts. You may find now and then people are saying that the leading terrorism threat statistically comes from what's called right-wing extremism, right-wing terrorism. And it may be substantial. But um, when you when you see that right-wing terrorism is juxtaposed with uh, Islamist terrorism, then what you might want to want to be asking is, how do you define right-wing terrorism? So, you know, if you mm. wind up taking defining right-wing terrorism as a bundle of all those terroristic acts attributed to, say, Christians, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, and others, well, of course it's going to outnumber, <laughs> the, the, um, at least I would assume it will outnumber, the incidents or frequency of terrorism attributable to Islamist causes. It becomes a phony kind of exercise, Mm. and we did see the Southern Poverty Law Center um, going one step beyond that, uh, defining Islamist terrorism as right-wing terrorism. So anyway, the statistics become a bit bizarre, and you begin to be entitled to ask what the motivation is for counting things in the way that sometimes we do. Does this discussion, uh, does this event change this discussion as a result? I mean, is it, um, again, there's those that have pointed to this and many examples of this. Does this event change the discussion? Uh, Hard to know. A great deal depends, as in all things in the modern age, on what opinion makers want to make of this. And uh, if it suits, you know, presidents and prime ministers to play things down, I guess, that we played down, and we've seen uh, often in the mainstream media, increasingly in uh, the Western world, uh, a tendency to uh, go along with that sort of interpretation. You're rather unusual in wanting to get to the direct truths in a good faith effort. So, uh, again, uh, you know, we've got social media. That has some pluses because it allows uh, voices to uh, explore some of the full spectrum of what might be going on, though it has the obvious drawbacks, too, of, uh, of course, being at risk in some quarters of building up hatred and division. 
Altogether, it's an interesting age. Mm. David Harris has been with us in Cigna Strategic Group. He is a terrorism expert commenting on what has happened uh, over Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. David, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. A pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Ukraine has a new president, uh, and he's a comedian. And, and a president, too, or at least he plays one on TV or something like that. Uh, either way, it, it appears that he has no prior uh, uh, political or, or presidential experience whatsoever uh, and has won by a landslide in their election. To talk about all of this, Andrew Rizoulas is with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and on the line now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott, and it's always great to be back with you and your listeners. Thanks for having me. You know, and we we love it when you take the time to join us. Uh, you know, this would seem odd or funny if we didn't have the same thing happening, I guess, in the United States with Donald Trump. But what can you tell us about this this new president? Okay, so Zelensky, uh, he's a 40-something, um, born in eastern Ukraine, uh, first language being Russian. He learned Ukrainian. Uh, lived in Mongolia for a number of years and studied law, never practiced it. So he has an education, uh, he, he, and, and he has an awareness of the East, which in the context of Ukrainian politics, this is very important, uh, because their, one of their, their primary external challenge is the conflict with Russia, and their primary internal challenge, of course, is the endemic corruption, which comes back to, to the days of the Soviet Union and so on. So he's an unknown quantity in terms of politics. Uh, we certainly know his quantity, quality in terms of uh, acting. And his show is very interesting. Um, it is an education in itself. And this actually, I have watched several of his, um, of his episodes of uh, Servant of the People, uh, which I, if I'm not uh, allowed to do a Netflix advertising, but you can, your viewers can watch it on Netflix, the English subtitles. Really? In that show, yeah, <laughs> you can watch that. You, you can do it on Netflix, Servant of the People. It'll come up. And uh, start with the very first show, because that's really, the, the best ones are at the very beginning when he actually flukes and wins. Uh, to be, it's a teacher. He's a history teacher in Ukraine, and he becomes a Ukrainian president by a fluke. But that whole process of how he becomes president, the induction, it's funny, but in the comedy, it's truth. Hmm. And they are, they are talking about all the corruption and, and that, that, the, the culture that's left over from the Soviet Union period, where his, his number one assistant is, in fact, a holdover. And he admits it in the show. He says, oh, yeah, I'm one of the old guys you right. know, who's hanging on. And he tries to So the point is that uh, he does understand what is going on. He is not a neophyte in terms of understanding what is happening in Ukraine. He's been dealing with it on the stage. Uh, but that doesn't, uh, in my mind, I mean, Shakespeare was, was, a, was, a, was a playwright, but he certainly knew the politics of his day. Hmm. So I don't think that that really excludes someone. Um, so this TV show is exactly, it's real life here. It, it, it's, it, yeah. His TV show was a portrayal of a president running in this country. So wh- why did he decide to run? Was this just l- like a publicity stunt? Maybe qu- many question why Trump you know, did the same thing. He didn't expect to win. So why did he, did, did he feel uh, that he knew enough about this and, and that he wanted to contribute? Or was this just publicity? How did he get yeah, here? Yeah, no, I... I- 
I, I think really we, we need to break this apart and, and not to have the Trump thing intercede because Trump is a very different person, very different scenario here. Although, yeah, he was real-time TV, but that's about as far as it goes. I think with Zelensky, it was genuine. He announced this just before uh, the end of December, uh, and he did it in his modern sort of way with on Facebook and using social media. Uh, he is a member of that generation, and he basically announced it, and he shot to the top of the polls very quickly. So it came out of nowhere. Uh, and, and people were digesting him in, in January, February, and he kept, and kept and he never lost his lead. Uh, the, and he crowdsourced his platform, if you will. He, he didn't come in with a more traditional way, saying, all right, here's my, the people I would have in my cabinet, here's my policy on this and blah, blah, blah. But he did make some general statements. And the general statement was on Russia, He's prepared to negotiate. Uh, he is not. Uh, he is opposed to actually uh, making Russian uh, a non-official language. Poroshenko had tried to make Ukrainian the only official language, and that has got some blowback uh, because a lot of Eastern Ukrainians uh, actually do speak Russian, and and it's uh, it's a political harm to them to to be said that you cannot use that language officially. So Zelensky said that he would protect that. These are important political things that he said, which had resonance, and they got traction, uh, and people voted overwhelmingly for him at 73% approximately at last count. So he's real. I think he's genuine. Uh, he's coming out of a different way. He's a new generation, obviously, um, but I take him seriously. So will he govern similar to his television show? I mean, what is his platform? Well, what is what are his policies? Uh, yeah. uh, how how do we know what direction he goes in? So so yeah. So if you watch his show, he picks his cabinet uh, based on people that he trusts, and 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 he goes up and down the different hierarchy. So if he picks like a, a captain to become the defense minister, now he's not going to go that far in real life, but he does have already a cadre of pretty good advisors, like. His financial advisor uh, or economics advisor is a guy named Abramovichus, who's actually a Lithuanian, who was brought in by Poroshenko in his cabinet uh, in, in, in early Poroshenko's government, but he resigned because of the corruption and he couldn't make, make breakthroughs. Now, he signed up with, uh, with Zelensky as his economics advisor, so he's got people like that, he's, and, and he, he's, he's, he can get some serious people. Now, uh, let me say up front what the detractors of him will say that um, his financial backer is a guy named uh, Ihor Kolomoisky, uh, who's a very rich Ukrainian oligarch uh, who uh, fell out of favor with Poroshenko. He was in Poroshenko's government as well in the early days, left, went to live in Israel, uh, manages his financial fortune from Switzerland, and has said that if Zelensky gets back in, he would return to Ukraine. Now, some people will say, well, so Zelensky is just simply a puppet of this oligarch. Mm -hmm. So the jury's still out on that. But I think we have that's on the table. We have to recognize that. How is he going to handle that? I, I think we understand at one level that uh, Ukrainian politics is a politics of the oligarchs. Yeah. So we have to accept that. And the question then is, how can that oligarchical political hierarchy move toward reform? And I believe that the smart uh, oligarchs actually recognize that over time they do have to accept reform. How is uh, how was how is Ukraine reacting to this? How are they feeling the next day when uh, this is their new president? Well, I mean, the, we, no one's taken actually a sub political uh, poll, if you will, 
but uh, there was a certainly uh, there was a feeling of I think by the time the uh, the uh, Easter Sunday rolled around and the and the vote took place, uh, my understanding from people on the ground there was that there was a feeling that it was a relaxed re- relaxed feeling, hmm. knowing that uh, Zelensky was going to win and everybody was we got we had seventy three percent. The vast majority were okay. Obviously, there are the supporters of Poroshenko who think that Zelensky now may be selling out to the Russians and that sort of thing. But uh, I, I think that's 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 hard politics. And I mean, then the, from the Russian point of view, uh, they have been very cautious with Zelensky. Putin has said nothing, so no congratulations from Putin. And what is and what does that all say? Expand on that a little bit. Well, what, 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 well, how yeah, would how would Russia be viewing this? Cautious, optim, cautious optimism. So. So the sequence of that, Putin does not say anything. He keeps quiet. He lets Medvedev, his prime minister, uh, give a, a very sort of cautious uh, congratulations and puts out the word that uh, the door is open for negotiation if you want it. And and the Russian, other official Russian spokesmen have echoed that. So from Russia, what you've got is a very cautious, we've opened the door, let's see where we go. So... It's, up, it's, it's, it's caution. There's no guarantees. There's nothing is a given, but the door is open. And, and, and uh, you know, Zelensky said he wants to bring home the Ukrainian prisoners. This is perfectly normal. Uh, when Nixon came, became president, he said he wanted to bring the POWs home before he ended the war in Vietnam or the American involvement. So Zelensky wants to end the conflict. Of course, he wants to bring home the, uh, the Ukrainian POWs that are being held uh, in the other side of the line. Uh, but I think... Um, I, cautious optimism is, I guess, the, the way to go. We cannot see the future, but the door is open, whereas before, the door was closed. Uh, with Poroshenko, it was everyone's in the trenches, and there's no moves. Uh, uh, we all know Putin has been chipping away at Ukraine. Uh, are you, is Ukraine worried now with Zelensky in charge? I mean, would they rather have Poroshenko in charge in a scenario like that defending Russia? Well, the vast majority of people uh, uh, are open to some form of negotiation because they voted for Zelensky. Clearly, if you were uh, uh, opposed to that, and there were some, but yeah. only a small minority, then they they supported Poroshenko. Poroshenko's whole line was based on uh, "I'm for country and church," you know, and and standing up for to, to against uh, Putin. In fact, his last uh, election posters had a picture of Poroshenko and facing off with Putin. So Zelensky, Zelensky wasn't even in the poster, you know. Hmm. Um, but, but the majority of people, I think Ukrainians are tired of the war. Uh, it's been a low-level conflict. The lines have not moved, but, but people have been shooting across the line since uh, 2014 and when the ceasefire came into effect in 15. Um, so there's over you know 10,000 people have been killed there. Uh, so people are tired of the war. They would like to see an easing of trade relations with Russia, uh, because a lot of Ukrainian products still have a good market in Russia, uh, and they've been limited in terms of what they can do. So there is a bit of war fatigue, and there is, I think, a realization as well that, A, they're not going to get into NATO, they're not going to get into the European Union. They have a trading relationship with the EU, but they're not going to become members. I think people are recognizing that, and they, they want to get on with their daily lives. And basically, Zelensky offers them that opportunity. Whether that opportunity will come to fruition, we don't know. From the Russian point of view, they also are looking for a way out of this. They don't want a permanent uh, of, uh, conflict uh, with, with Ukraine. They obviously want Ukraine to remain in their sphere of influence. Uh, therefore, they're, I think they're, uh, they're prepared to go for a neutral Ukraine, not necessarily Ukraine that's inside Russia, 
but certainly not one that's with NATO or the European Union. But again, from a Ukrainian point of view, that's not going to happen anyways. So you might as well negotiate something in the middle. Uh, what did what did uh, Zelensky win this election on? What what was his main what were his main ideas? His main platform. His main is two, two two points. One, I will negotiate with Russia. So people just grew uh, fatigued of the whole Russia con- yeah. Russian conflict and yeah. this dragging yeah. on forever. Yeah. Yeah, because you had you had two very distinct. Poroshenko says, yeah. "I'm going to hold the line and and we're going to join NATO." Uh, Zelensky says. I'm going to negotiate with Russia. I will maintain uh, cooperation with the West, but I also am going to open up uh, an avenue of discussion with Russia. Uh, within the context of the Euro- under the auspices of the European Union and the Normandy Group, of course, uh, he's not going to go at it alone. And on the other side, he's going to he's going to attack corruption. That's actually the bigger challenge hmm. uh, because because uh, uh, the, it's it's an oligarchical society. I mean, he does have uh, Ihor Kolomoisky backing him and so on. And there is the real challenge. And his TV show is all about that. His TV show doesn't even talk about Russia. It's it's all about uh, dealing with uh, the corruption. Um, so that that's that's really going to be the hardest of all the nuts to crack. Uh, and how is the rest of the world viewing this over and above Russia? Well, so far we've had all the right uh, noises coming from everyone saying congratulations. And I understood the British uh, foreign minister uh, called and said uh, to him, well, you are now truly the servant of the people, making a, bit <laughs> of a joke on the fact that that's his TV show. Um, uh, no, there's always been, I mean, Merkel has, call, has, has reached out to him. And, of course, Merkel, uh, the German chancellor, uh, is very, very concerned that, that, that there is movement on the Normandy process. Germany has been leading the Normandy group, along with France. Uh, to try and secure a, a that well that the Minsk II agreement, which is the ceasefire, but there is a whole package of, uh, of measures which, if implemented, would actually bring about peace. Uh, the thing is that ne- neither the Ukrainian government nor the Russian government have moved on that. Chiefly being from the Ukrainian side, a recognition of a the Russian language in the Donbass as, as being legitimate, as being a sort of a set official language, uh, and and a sort of a federalized uh, approach where there's semi-autonomy to the Donbass. Unless that's given, the Russians then refuse to pull back and 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 to and to let go of the border they control between Ukraine and and Russia on the Donbass area. So one must precede the other. Um, no one's made moves before. The question is, will these moves occur now? Merkel is certainly trying to hope that they will. Uh, and the procedure, the process is there. And now it's a question: Is will Zelensky be able to uh, deliver the game? Um, were you surprised at this, Andrew, especially with 73% of the vote? Are we talking about a new strand of politician here around the world? I mean, is this populism? What is this? Uh, this, is, this is, I mean, populism sometimes has a negative term. Uh, uh, let's just say that it, it certainly it is a new type of politician. It's also a new generation. Um, the fact that you're crowdsourcing your, your platforms and so on, yes, this is a completely different way of doing it. Is this populism? To a certain degree, it is populism, and I don't mean this in the negative, but I mean it more in the positive term, in the sense that it is the people taking control of the political process. So let's look at it in a positive stream of populism, not the negative, the hard left or the hard right. You bring up a valid um, point, and I've had this discussion with others, too. Is populism yeah. a bad word? No, I mean, it, it's becoming like that, but it, historically, look it up in the dictionary, it is not. It is simply, uh, technically speaking, it is control of the political process by the populace. It's in a way like democracy. That's what I, I remember reading the definition and thinking it sounds like democracy to me. Exactly, and it is. How did, so, it, get, how did it, it become it, a negative term? 
Well, because of the, the contemporary movement of people like Trump uh, in Hungary, the government, in Poland, these are, uh, and Marie Le Pen in France. So you have all these sort of what's called simplistic solutions from either the extreme left or the extreme right. Uh, generally, these days, they tend to come from the right, but they can, can also come from the left. Uh, probably in Venezuela, there's a bit of that, that left uh, populism. Eh? So, uh, but the point is, and so people then get turned off by this simplistic approach to politics. And that's true. When you have extremes and simplifying things, it is not the best policies. But you can have a policy in the middle that's a populist-driven policy as well. And that's what I think what we have with Zelensky. So, yes, he is a populist, if you will, but not in a negative sense. He is someone who's reaching out to the people. The people can feel that. Uh, was I surprised? Not particularly. I didn't think he'd get 70%, I was, uh, but I, I, I felt confident he would win the election because the polls showed him consistently in the lead since he declared in December. So I felt he was going to win. Uh, and the fact that he has won did not surprise me. His The large extent of his mandate did, did surprise me a certain degree. But that's fine. That reinforces his, his political mandate. Now, let me just say one thing to you and your listeners. The other, this is only the first half of the game politically in Ukraine in 2019. The second half, which is equally important, is the parliamentary elections in October, uh, October 31st. Because in Ukraine, Power is completely shared. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, one can, one cannot do something without the other. The president is dependent on the parliament and vice versa. So Zelensky will only be able to fulfill his mandate in conjunction and cooperation with the parliament. Hmm. And now the game is shifting in Ukraine on the parliamentary election. This is where the process has shifted. And today the Ukrainian parliament has gone into an emergency sort of mess, uh, uh, session to kind of take stock of the situation now and plan its game. And everybody, and of course, uh, Poroshenko now, will be shifting his uh, game plan to the parliament. And he's going to look for, for representation of himself and his, and his political friends in parliament. And Yulia Timoshenko, finished third, is also going to try that too. Mm. So this is, the game's not over. Uh, this is only half the game. This is the first half of a, <laughs> of a game. It's like a football game. First half. The second half is still going gonna to be played out like now. So where is Ukraine going now? They're shifting gears to the parliamentary elections. And uh, that's in October. So, Is this changing politics? Is this changing our view of the politician? Uh, also, you know, almost the protest vote, almost the anti-establishment political vote. Is this, is this changing Certainly the way we Ukraine, view... Yeah, certainly in Ukraine uh, it is, in the sense that uh, uh, other polling suggested that in Ukraine people have basically almost given up on their government. Their faith in their government is extremely low. Um, people feel that their government since 1991, essentially, since they gained independence from the Soviet Union and from um, Russia ultimately, uh, has not been able to deliver the goods for Ukraine, uh, with the endemic corruption in particular being their, their greatest uh, bane. Uh, and so Zelensky offers a potential alternative, and I say a potential alternative, but he is certainly not the mainstream. He's not what preceded, like Poroshenko represented the old guard, Zelensky represents the new guard. So in the context of Ukraine, he does define a new way of doing politics. Uh, in other countries, well, I mean, there's different different things, and, and there are different ways of doing politics, and one way Trudeau defines politics somewhat differently. You know, I mean, there are different measures of all yeah. this, but... Uh, in, certainly in Ukraine, it was radical because there was this great dissatisfaction with the government, greater in Ukraine than in most other countries, uh, so in democ democratic countries. And so consequently, uh, Zelensky is a new 
phenomena uh, and a new player, and there's potentially he could deliver some goods there. But we'll have to see. But again, I, I caution everyone, wait for the second half hmm. in the parliament. Vladimir Zelensky is the new president of the Ukraine. Joining us has been Andrew Rizoulis, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, the tide is changing in Ukraine. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Andrew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. It's been, uh, I guess, a few days, a week since the Mueller report has been uh, released uh, you're, we remember talking about it uh, late last week and, and trying to decode it all. Uh, now that it's been uh, out for a while, uh, what has surfaced? What stands out about this? Let's bring in Michael Trocott, a professor emeritus of communication studies and political science, uh, University of Michigan, and is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be with you, Scott. So the Mueller report uh, released last week. Uh, people, have experts have had time to go through this. Uh, did we learn anything new? What stands out in this for you? Well, I, uh, I, I think the most interesting part of the report is how uh, there could have been clear instances of obstruction of justice by the president if the people around him had followed his uh, wishes or instructions, but for many of them, they thought they couldn't do that, and so he was uh, actually prevented by his own staff from getting in further trouble. So where does this leave us at the end of this report? Is it simply uh, the way it's always been? It depends on who you ask. He has his base. He has his supporters. He has those that are not. Uh, does this change the discussion? Does this move the discussion forward in any way? I think uh, currently it doesn't really move the discussion forward too much until and if uh, the Congress, the relevant committees, get an unredacted version of the report, including the supporting evidence. It's, it, it's not clear that it's going to be volunteered by the Justice Department, but I think through a series of hearings that will evolve testimony by Mueller, Barr, maybe McGahn. Uh, we'll learn a lot more, and then Congress will decide whether, uh, starting in the House, they want to get serious about impeachment. Any reason to believe anything that is redacted is of, of interest, or is that just protecting the obvious? Well, I, I think that uh, some of the Details, for example, of Russian interference or conversations between Trump campaign staffers and uh, various Russians could be relevant. And uh, to the extent that impeachment is a kind of political act that reflects a judgment on the behavior of the president in office, then I think testimony by McGahn uh, could be quite telling in what the Congress decides to do, the House decides to do. One complication here, which uh, I know that you understand, is that even if the Democrats in the House were to take action and uh, uh, pass articles of impeachment, it's very unlikely the Senate would do anything uh, to, to confirm that unless the hearings produce uh, unexpected revelations. 
Um, Nancy Pelosi, uh, in the weeks before the report being released, seemed uh, to back away from impeach- impeachment, whether she knew that there wasn't much coming out uh, in this report or not. I'm, I'm not sure. But but is there enough? Is there anything more now after the report than before the, por- the report to, to think that this uh, would do anything other than just be more divisive? Well, I, I, I think the devil is in the details of the supporting evidence, and so therefore we don't know yet because we or the members of the House haven't seen that yet. Um, the, you know, the whole issue of the firing of Comey and the attempts to fire Mueller, which are reported uh, by Mueller, uh, could be sufficient depending upon uh, the description, for example, that that uh, uh, McGahn provides. Uh, Donald Trump, prior to this being released, um, uh, was reported to have said that this was going to bring him down, that this was going to ruin his presidency. It seems as if he's more guilty than he actually is. What, what are we finding out here? Um, uh, for a guy who's innocent, he certainly acts pretty guilty. Why is that? And, and is that what's driving this? Well, I think they had a strategy, uh, you know, which was a reasonable political strategy to try to get out ahead of the reporting of the details of the report. And that involves preparations that uh, the president and his team made. It may have involved some coordination with the attorney general and the press conference that he held. So, you know, this this initial claim of exoneration was a, was a strong claim. But now, with the passage of time, uh, as journalists in particular delve into the details, including the footnotes in the report, uh, the conclusions are clearly more damning. And in a, in a recent uh, poll, I think released this morning or, or last evening, uh, Trump's approval rating has dropped. Uh, you know, a few points to its lowest level ever. So the 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 glow of the initial reaction structured by uh, Republican attempts uh, to to frame interpretation of the report seems to be gone now. And uh, some people, not Trump's base, but others, are becoming more concerned about its contents. Uh, the longer this report is out, does it is it does it become less damaging, or do we know everything that there is to know from this? No, I think that in the midterm, it's going to become more damaging if uh, members of the House, various committees, are able to organize hearings on the details uh, and to get additional information from the Department of Justice. Um, the it, it it would be it, we wouldn't expect the public to obviously read the whole report of you know 448 pages and uh we don't think they paid much attention to the details of the news but if there were congressional hearings and and Mueller appeared and Barr appeared and there were uh brief video clips of the testimony they provided, that could have a big impact on public opinion. Will we eventually hear from Mueller, do you think? And and will, um, he, will he add any clarity to this? 
I'm pretty sure that uh, the Congress will hear from Mueller. Uh, and I say that because there's suggestion in the media that Mueller and certainly members of his team were dissatisfied with the representation of the report by the Attorney General. And so I think he would, he would uh, be glad to have an opportunity to clarify the record. Why hasn't he spoken out already, even through the media, now that the report's out? I mean, he's done his job. Does he, d- d- would that matter? I, I think it's pretty clear that he's a by-the-book kind of guy. Yeah. And uh, he's not anxious for a lot of uh, press coverage or personal notoriety. But uh, if he were summoned to a committee in the Congress, I think he would think that that was part of his duty and he would be he would be glad to do that but he's not going to hold uh, press availabilities uh interesting note from a, a listener here the primary basis for the uh, investigation of the Trump campaign was an un, was the unverified steel dossier a dossier who worked with russian sources that was brought uh, bought and paid for by the democratic party and the clinton campaign initially started by republicans against trump are the democrats innocent in all of this uh, well, this is <laughs> this is politics, which by its nature in the United States is partisan. Yeah. So I I wouldn't expect each of the members of the party or the leadership of the parties to be, you know, completely innocent. But uh, the 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 central issue here is that um, Mueller either didn't find illegalities or couldn't establish sufficient uh, evidence to support uh, uh, the notion of illegalities. So the debate is going to be really about uh, appropriate behavior in the presidency right? and, and, and whether or not uh, standards that we thought pertain to the office and conduct in office um, have been maintained or discarded. I guess just simply by viewing what we have all witnessed over the last, uh, well, since since the election, uh, isn't it pretty safe to say he's not really, you know, what he does, his actions aren't appropriate? I mean, should we be surprised here? So he's going to, I am guess, well, what he's been saying is whether it's appropriate or not, it's irrelevant to him as long as it wasn't illegal. Uh, can he walk that, 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 uh, that line, and and you know, we heard when this report was released that that Donald Trump was very upset about this. That he thought that this was going to be the end of his presidency. Why would he think that? Well, um, he must have some sense of the appropriateness or the inappropriateness of his behavior, right? And uh, and concerns. We, we we're pretty confident he had concerns about how the public would perceive the legitimacy of his presidency if they believed that the Russians had a significant role in you know, getting him elected. Um, but, uh, you know, his, his outrageous behavior is a hallmark of his entire career yeah. you know, in the real estate business. Mm-hmm. The question is, does it, you know, does it translate appropriately to the office of president of the United States? 
Has he created enough confusion, distraction in regard to all of this Mueller report? I mean, he's still yelling no collusion, even though the thing's been out for a while and saying that he didn't collude um, or, or, you know, that there wasn't enough evidence to, to prove that or, or Mueller's conclusion here. Um, has he created enough confusion and distraction that none of this matters? Well, we don't know yet whether it matters, although he has created a lot of confusion. Um, you know, the fact that uh, Ru- uh, Rudy Giuliani went on television last night and said, uh, what's wrong with taking information from the Russians? Um, what difference does it make uh, if it's uh, immoral, if it's not illegal? These, This is not, I, I would say, arguing from strength in terms of his you know, position, the campaign's yeah. position. So... We'll have to see how that part plays out. So how does Donald Trump handle this moving forward? Does he just keep bringing it up? Because he still is talking about it. He's still he's still making reference to it. Well, the problem is it's not going to go away under the threat of the congressional hearings. Right. So even if he wanted to stop discussing it, it would still be a newsworthy topic. And I expect it'll be a newsworthy topic well into the summer. Is he drawing more attention to it, though, by commenting on it? Well, uh, he he is in a sense, although the case that he's making is really one of framing, he, you know, how he wants the public to interpret it. But he's going to lose control of that ability once the hearings in the Congress begin. Uh, many have questioned recently Sarah Sanders and her handling of of the press. And, well, I guess there hasn't been a, a formal briefing in, in a long period of time now. Um, 43 days, I believe. Yeah, and, and they seem to be going on each day, you know, with another day uh, between each one. Um, obviously, this is a tough job. I mean, we've seen him go through uh, press secretaries since uh, since uh, he started. Uh, obviously, it's it's not an easy job for them to do. How is she faring in her performance in trying to uh, articulate what the president says? How does she how does she walk a line between telling the truth and not telling the truth? Well, first of all, it's pretty clear from the report that she crossed the line uh, by admitting to Mueller under oath yeah. that she made things up. And uh, the under the best of circumstances, the role of press secretary to the president would be difficult. And uh, working with this particular president uh, makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible. Yeah. But... Nevertheless, the relationship with journalists is based upon a kind of trust that the that the press office will convey uh, honestly what what's going on uh, in the White House with regard to policy, policy formulation, and and, and the like. And it it's it's been clear for some time uh, that they haven't been entirely truthful. But the Mueller report uh, now seems to indicate that they've been deliberately misleading. How is how will uh, the U.S. respond to that? Because again, this is not necessarily that's damaged something damaging against the president, but certainly uh, damaging against his staff. Will we see a replacement in this position soon because of this? Well, um, I'm not sure exactly. It's possible. I think if 
if they were operating in the normal way, where the press secretary appeared almost every day to to uh, have an exchange with reporters about things that were going on in in the White House, it would be more likely that she would be replaced. But if they're going to go five or six weeks between press conferences, she might be able to hold out. I think the president clearly thinks that she's a, uh, you know, a real loyal soldier. So uh, is it in his best interest for her to stay or change this up? Will it, will, will, there be, will it draw more attention to the fact that he changes it up, or is he best to leave her in this position? Well, I think it would draw attention to the you know, general set of problems if he were to try to replace her. I think an interesting question is whether or not he could find somebody who would take the job. Yeah. That probably has a lot to do with it right there. I think so. Uh, will he continue to tweet about this? As I mentioned earlier, will it not be best for him to just let this peter out? I think he's too compulsive a personality to, you know, let it ride. So I expect that he, I expect that he will continue to tweet about this. All right. Uh, joining us has been Michael Troca, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, University of Michigan. Michael, thanks so much for the time as always. Much appreciated. Good to chat. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.